Twelve Byzantine Rulers by Lars Brownworth. Episode 11, Irene. Welcome back. Last time we talked about the Emperor Heraclius, whose reign saw such euphoric triumphs and devastating tragedy. His death threw the empire into confusion, and when his unpopular widow Martina tried to take control, the people backed a rival claimant who cut out her tongue, split her nose, and exiled her to the island of Rhodes. The chaos only intensified after that. Of the next ten emperors, one died of dysentery and the rest were overthrown. One of them, Justinian II, was even overthrown twice. The timing of such dynastic chaos was particularly bad, and as the empire squandered its strength, a new and deadly enemy exploded out of the desert. The Saracen tide seemed invincible, born as it was on the fire of religious zeal to spread Islam by the sword. The Byzantines, disunited and squabbling, virtually surrendered their territory. First to fall was the richest province, Egypt. Alexandria, resting place of Alexander the Great, and location of a library that was one of the wonders of the ancient world, was sacked in 638. After a bumbling imperial counteroffensive, it was retaken eight years later by the Caliph Omar and heavily damaged. This time, the Muslim commander took no chances. The walls were razed to the ground, and the capital was moved to the village of Fastat, later renamed Cairo. As to what happened to the library, that remains somewhat of a mystery. Most scholars agree that it had long since been past its prime, and was only a shell of its former self, having been repeatedly subjected to devastating fires and occasional bouts of vandalism. But as to who delivered the final coup de grace, the popular story is that the Caliph Omar, when asked what should be done with the library, famously responded, If the books of the library do not contain the teachings of the Quran, they are useless and should be destroyed. If the books do contain the teachings of the Quran, they are superfluous and should be destroyed. He then ordered the books to be burnt in the public furnaces, where, due to the great volume of them, they took six months to burn, heeding the conqueror's saunas. While entertaining, the story dates from at least 450 years after the event, and as such, it's probably just Christian propaganda. In fact, the library may not even have still existed at all. It had been heavily damaged, if not destroyed, in a riot centuries earlier when a Christian mob tried to burn the section on necromancy and witchcraft. In any case, if any semblance of a library was left, it didn't escape the destruction of the city. The next year saw the Saracens inflict a crushing defeat on the Exarch of Carthage, leaving Africa practically defenseless. They then turned to Armenia and Cappadocia, capturing the major city of Caesarea and pushing back another disorganized Byzantine army. Two years later, the important naval base of Cyprus fell, along with several other islands, as the Muslim navy, still unopposed, swept all before it. Rhodes, the proud possessor of another of the wonders of the world, the Colossus, was taken four years later. The statue of the sun god lay where it had fallen during an earthquake 900 years before, and the victorious commander had it broken up and sold for scrap. According to one source, it required 900 camels to haul away the pieces. The assassination of the Caliph Othman gave the empire five years of breathing room, but when the new caliph was proclaimed, emphasizing that nothing had changed, he made it his goal to annihilate the Roman Empire. It was not an empty threat, the Byzantine emperor Constans II felt so threatened on his southeastern border that he took the unorthodox step of moving the capital to Sicily to better protect Italy. Though a slave wielding a soap dish later assassinated him in his bath 
and the capital was returned to the Bosphorus, nothing seemed able to stem the Muslim tide. Each year the caliph had sent an army into Anatolia and a fleet into the Ionian Sea, steadily capturing cities and islands alike and meeting little resistance. By 672 they were at the gates of Constantinople, and a five-year siege began. It was unsuccessful largely due to a secret weapon that had been recently invented, Greek fire. Made of a flammable material that would burn even in the water, it could be sprayed or pumped at enemy ships with devastating results, and was considered such a state secret that even today we don't know its exact composition. The Muslim advance, blunted for the first time, was redirected to the southwest, annihilating the exarchate of Carthage, then all of Africa and Spain. Worse still, they once again started to chip away at Asia Minor, and 40 years later were back beneath the walls of Constantinople, this time with 80,000 men and 1,800 ships. Clearly the empire had to offer more than token resistance, or the end had come. In this desperate hour of need, a Syrian shepherd saved the Byzantines. Fluent in Arabic and possessing a keen understanding of the Arab mind, he had, so the story goes, encountered the emperor on campaign and offered him some sheep to feed his army. Recognizing talent when he saw it, the emperor had offered the youth a position in his personal guard. Rising quickly in the imperial ranks, the young man had been given several important commands, and taking the name Leo III, had been proclaimed emperor a few months before the siege began. Providing the lone bright spot in the military history of the period, he went on to outsmart his opponents at every turn, even inducing the Bulgarians, traditional enemies of the empire, to sweep down and perform the coup de grace on the miserable besieging army. Fewer than half of the Arab invaders managed to drag themselves back to Damascus, while of the 1,800 ships, only five escaped the Greek fire and winter storms to see their home ports again. Having thus saved the situation and united Christendom under his rule, Leo turned around and unhesitatingly unleashed a religious firestorm that would rip the empire apart for the next hundred years. The controversy came to be called iconoclasm, or literally, the destruction of icons, and it was to continue to distract and drain needed resources till the reign of Michael III in the 9th century. The problem was that unlike the other major world religions, Christianity had never really made up its mind about whether depicting God was idolatry. Generally speaking, Judaism and Islam forbade it, Buddhism and Hinduism encouraged it, but Christianity, to the great benefit of Western art, has always seen it as a shade of gray. The line between honor and idolatry has been notoriously difficult to define in our own day, much less for the Byzantines and their endless theological speculations. In 8th century Constantinople, these discussions took on a desperate importance. This was no academic debate. Icons had become something of a cult. They were paraded around the walls in times of war, prayed to in times of peace, openly worshipped, and even stood in for godparents at baptisms. Perhaps it was inevitable that a reaction came. To some extent, the Byzantine world was in a constant religious ferment, and the eastern territories in particular had always been a hotbed. There the doctrine of monophysitism had flourished, the belief that Christ had one nature, and that nature was divine. To say he was also a man with a human nature was blasphemy, and it was, after all, only a small step from that to the belief that any attempt to portray Christ as a man was also blasphemy. Growing up in the East, Leo was undoubtedly exposed to these ideas, 
and in the wake of contact with the Muslim world, with their prohibition of all images, he came to the conclusion, along with a good portion of his Eastern subjects, that any representation of the divine, and icons in particular, were a violation of the second commandment. At first content to give sermons lambasting the iconodules, those who favored icons, in the spring of 726 he decided that the time of words was past. The icon he chose to make an example of was located on the main gate to the imperial palace. The gate had been built by Justinian after the Nika riots and was an impressive structure. The central dome was of polished marble and held a series of mosaics celebrating the victories of Justinian and Belisarius. In the center were full-length portraits of the emperor and empress, with the senate ranged on either side. Outside, above the doors, was a magnificent golden icon of Christ, perhaps the most prominent in the city, and it was this that Leo ordered destroyed. The reaction was immediate. In the city, a group of outraged women killed the officer in charge of the demolition, and riots broke out all over the empire. When Leo obstinately refused to back down, and instead issued a formal edict declaring that all holy images were to be destroyed, it caused an open breach between the eastern and western churches. On the Venetian lagoon, the horrified citizens rebelled and appointed a local leader as Doge, and the Venetian Republic, both an ally and inveterate enemy of the empire, was born. Leo's son Constantine V was, if anything, even more iconoclast than his father. Titles like holy or saint would send him into fits of rage, he forbid anyone in his courts from saying them, even as an expletive, and he had all the churches appropriately renamed. Much of his 34-year reign was spent attacking monasteries with an almost maniacal dedication, even stooping on occasion to smearing the beards of monks who resisted with oil and wax and setting them on fire together with their libraries. By the end of Constantine's life, the empire had officially been iconoclast for 50 years, his reign of terror had purged the army, government, and clergy of iconodules, and of his six sons, the eldest, Leo IV, seemed to be of the same mindset. All that remained was for him to select a suitable wife for his successor. He chose a stunningly beautiful orphan from Athens, and though her original name is lost, upon her coronation she took the name Irene. If he had wanted a trophy wife for his son, he could hardly have made a worse choice. She would soon prove to be one of the most grasping and ambitious women ever to be made empress, and for the next 27 disastrous years would be the effective ruler of the Byzantine world. Growing up in the western provinces of the empire, she was strongly in support of icons and determined to defeat iconoclasm once and for all. Her husband, perhaps already suffering from the tuberculosis that would kill him, weakly acquiesced allowing the exiled monks to return, and even appointing an iconodule patriarch. When his health suddenly declined and he died in the fifth year of his reign, his son Constantine VI was only ten years old, and Irene leapt at her chance, immediately declaring herself regent. She had made no secret of her feelings about icons, and the army, thoroughly iconoclast, immediately mutinied in favor of the late emperor's five brothers. The rising was quickly suppressed, the brothers tonsured and sent to a monastery, and Irene, realizing how strong her opposition was, took advantage of the situation to carry out a drastic purge of the army. It could hardly have come at a worse time. The Saracens were again on the attack, and the army could ill afford to lose many of its best officers and soldiers. Morale plunged, and defections became commonplace. 
In Sicily, the disgusted governor declared his independence and then placed himself under the protection of the Saracens. Her forces closer to home proved to be just as unreliable. Faced with an Arab invasion of Anatolia a hundred thousand strong, the army Irene sent simply joined the Muslims, forcing her to buy a humiliating and expensive peace. Unruffled, she continued with her religious program, calling the eighth and final ecumenical council of the church, and officially condemned iconoclasm. It was for her a triumphal moment, perhaps spoiled only by one concern. Her son was by now 17 years old, married, and though still a figurehead, could be expected to want to take more of an active role in day-to-day affairs. Her regency was drawing to its close, but having tasted power, she had no intent of releasing it. Emphasizing this point, she decreed that from that moment she should be regarded as the senior ruler, and her name should always be mentioned before his. It was a thoroughly unnecessary humiliation, and in inflicting it she had overreached herself. Some of the senior officers of the army joined together in a conspiracy to banish her to Sicily and make Constantine the sixth emperor. Enraged when she got word of the plot, Irene threw her son into prison, executed the ringleaders, and demanded that the entire army swear an oath of loyalty to her personally. In the capital, the army swore the oath willingly, but in the east, where iconoclast sentiments still lingered, they refused, and calling for Constantine to be the sole ruler, they started a mutiny. The rebellion spread like wildfire, and within days Constantine was liberated and had returned to the capital. Irene was banished from the city and placed under house arrest in one of her palaces. It's unfortunate that Constantine VI did not possess even a shred of his mother's drive or ambition, for he soon proved himself hopelessly incompetent. His one military campaign ended with him fleeing the field in a panic, and his subsequent policy of paying off the Saracens was both humiliating and prohibitively expensive. Before long, he had convinced himself to recall his mother from exile and reinstate her to power. For many of his former supporters, this was the last straw. They hatched a plot to get rid of both mother and son in favor of one of the five uncles still living in the monastery where Irene had banished them. The plot failed, and Constantine, probably under the influence of his mother, had the offending uncle blinded, and just to be sure, had the tongues cut out of the other four. The citizens of Constantinople were horrified and disgusted. The emperor they had put so much trust in had shown that not only was he weak, disloyal, and a coward, but he was also capable of the most savage cruelty. The only remaining faction loyal to him were the Iconodules, who, believing him to be their enemy, had been overjoyed when he restored his mother to power. They were not to support him for long. Irene had long since decided to get rid of her weak son. She never forgave him for banishing her, and she had few illusions as to how easily it could happen again. Taking every opportunity to undermine his authority, she soon realized that he had grown bored with his wife and fallen in love with one of the court ladies. Here was the perfect opportunity to discredit him. With the encouragement of his mother, Constantine divorced his wife and married his mistress. He had alienated his last potential allies. The monks were suitably scandalized and refused to consider his son legitimate. Constantine, realizing how unpopular he had become, decided to refurbish his military reputation in a glorious campaign against the Muslims. No sooner had he marched, however, then Irene's agents fed him false reports saying that the Saracens had retreated across the frontier. When the emperor returned to the capital, he was to find that with the invaders still raiding in Byzantine territory, 
His reputation was even worse, with some even calling him a coward in the streets. Irene chose this moment to strike. She waited until Constantine had attended the races at the Hippodrome and ambushed him with a party of soldiers when he was making his way home. In the chaos of the ensuing battle, he somehow managed to slip out of the city, but Irene moved faster, and he was captured almost immediately. She had him brought back to the Imperial Palace, and there, in the very room he had been born in 27 years earlier, she had him blinded so brutally that he died. It was, perhaps, the cruelest murder that even Byzantine history has to offer, and it left a stain on her reputation that she never overcame. She was at last the sole ruler of the empire, the first woman to rule not as regent or empress, but emperor. She was not to enjoy it for long. Perhaps inevitably for such a scheming ruler, her ministers and advisors constantly plotted against each other, dividing the government until effective rule became impossible. She tried to improve her reputation by granting huge tax breaks, even canceling the more unpopular ones. But most citizens were horrified by her fiscal irresponsibility. Their respect could not be so easily bought. Already bankrupt, she then promised a huge sum of money that she couldn't begin to pay as a tribute to the Saracens. She had brought the empire only humiliation, disgrace, and poverty. It was clearly only a matter of time until one dissatisfied group or another rose up in revolt. The end, however, when it came, was not from the east, but from the west. The west had not unduly troubled Heraclius, and none of his successors had paid much attention to it, distracted as they were by the iconoclastic controversy. Worse still, the condemnation of images had alienated the Pope and most of Western Christendom. Italy received no help from Constantinople as the Lombards slowly overwhelmed the peninsula. Most of northern Italy had fallen when in 751 Ravenna, the last imperial stronghold, was taken by the Lombard king. The Pope should have appealed to the Emperor for assistance, but he had no desire or faith in the arrogant and heretical iconoclast in Constantinople. So instead, he marched over the Alps to France, and there courted the rising power of the Franks. Giving their king Pepin the title of patrician, and anointing him king of the Franks, he invited them into Italy to defend Rome against the Lombards. Pepin, for his part, promised to return all conquered lands to the Pope. The partnership turned out to be a successful one. Pepin swept into Italy, bringing the Lombards to their knees, and turned over a large swath of territory to the Pope, bringing into existence the Papal States, which, in a vastly shrunken form, still exist today as Vatican City. But it was Pepin's son Charlemagne who was to take the relationship to its fullest extent. Pope Leo was hated by a small group of Roman noblemen who were determined to get rid of him. Failing by normal methods, they ambushed him and left him beaten unconscious in the street. Smuggled out of the city by some friends, he found upon his return that his enemies had accused him of everything they could think of, including simony, perjury, drunkenness, and adultery. The two sides had reached an impasse. Who was qualified to try the Vicar of Christ? The only possible answer was the emperor at Constantinople. But not only was she known to have killed her own son, she was also a woman, and therefore disbarred by Salic law from ruling. As far as the Pope and Charlemagne were concerned, the throne of the East was empty. In December of 800, Charlemagne made his way to Rome and testified on the Pope's behalf. Leo then swore on the Gospels that he was innocent, and the assembled clergy accepted his word. With his name newly cleared, 
he prepared to officiate the Christmas Mass, and it was there in a stunningly bold move that he took the congregation by surprise and placed the imperial crown on Charlemagne's head, declaring that he was now a holy Roman emperor. After 400 years, an emperor had returned to the West. The act was breathtaking in its presumption. At a stroke, the Pope had split the Roman Empire and created a rival emperor. But if he had given an honor to Charlemagne, he had given himself an even greater one. The imperial crown was his to give, and what he could make, he could also unmake. The Pope was claiming superiority over the emperor. A thousand years later, Napoleon would show that he had learned that lesson well. When he was declared an emperor, he crowned himself. The news was received in Constantinople with horror and outrage. Just as there was one God in heaven, so was there one unified empire and one emperor on earth. To claim otherwise was blasphemous. The emperor might not be as universally respected as he should be, but no one had ever claimed equality with him. And yet, here was an illiterate barbarian calling himself an emperor, and the pope had crowned him. Charlemagne, for his part, recognized a unique opportunity. Irene was in her late forties, single, and by all accounts still remarkably beautiful. If he could persuade her to marry him, he could unite the East and West again under one ruler. To the citizens of Constantinople, the only thing more insulting than the marriage request was the fact that Irene seemed to be seriously considering it. The reasons are not hard to see. Hated by her subjects, with enemies on every frontier, waiting only for the inevitable revolution to topple her, this seemed like a perfect escape. The empire would remain united, and far more importantly, she would remain in power. For the citizens of Constantinople, it was the last straw. They had no intention of letting a blasphemous, boorish Frank, with his ridiculous clothing and uncouth manner, become emperor, and acting at last, they took her prisoner in her own palace and declared her deposed in the Hippodrome. She was exiled to the island of Lesbos, where she died less than a year later. Her reign had been disastrous, both economically and militarily. While the empire had been preoccupied with iconoclasm, its enemies had made massive inroads. Spain, Italy, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and North Africa were all gone, never to be retaken. The treasury was empty, and the economy was ruined by Irene's desperate attempt to gain popularity. The world itself seemed changed. The old order was gone. No longer was there a single temporal head of Christendom. No longer was there one undisputed emperor and one empire. From now on, there were two, and they would all too often be at each other's throats. For Irene, however, there was somewhat of a happy ending. Iconoclasm smoldered on for another forty years, finally expiring during the reign of Michael III, when his mother, Theodora, like Irene the Regent, proclaimed the restoration of icons. History is indeed written by the winners. Constantine V, so staunch in his opposition to religious images, is known by the nickname Capronimus, literally, name of dung. As for Irene and her dedication to icons, her feast day is August 9th. She is still celebrated as a saint by the Orthodox Church. Join me next time as I talk about the glittering career of Basil I, who oversaw a renaissance in art, restored the glory of the empire, and founded the most splendid dynasty in Byzantine history. Twelve Byzantine Rulers is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West, The Forgotten Byzantine Empire That Rescued Western Civilization.
Look for Lost to the West on Amazon.com or at your local bookstore. Visit us at 12byzantinerulers.com.